Hi, I'm Saskia Vogel. Welcome to the Granta Podcast. This week, Granta Deputy Editor Ella Olfrey speaks with Binivanga Wainana, a Bard Center Fellow and the Director of the Chinua Achieve Center for Global African Arts. They discuss his debut memoir, One Day I Will Write About This Place, what to do with a negative review, and the challenge of representing life in Kenya. But first, let's listen to Binivanga read an extract from the book. It is almost lunchtime, and boiled cauliflower looms. We live on top of the hill. We look down on the town. From here, looking down on Nakuru, everywhere there are purple, puffed-up cabbages of blooming jacaranda heads. Cauliflowering, I think. I shudder and look away. I look past the silos to the edge of town, the symmetrical fields of green maize, Kellogg's conflicts, then wheat, Weetabix is unbeatabix. All around in the distance are mountains. Nakuru is a high-altitude town at the bottom of the Rift Valley. This geography class contradiction confuses me. Shiro and I like to call Kenya's tallest building, Kenyatta Conflicts Center. Brown is near, green far, blue furthest. The hills in the distance are dark, Maasai land. From here you can see Kenya's main highway, the Mombasa-Kisumu road, where there are often long, long lines of army tanks and trucks going to the Lanet barracks. Uganda is still falling. Idi Amin ran away. They killed all the prisoners and left blood and guts in the prison. Some bodies had no heads. Tanzania and Museveni attacked Amin. Mum is on the phone a lot with uncles and aunties. Most of them are now all over the world. President Moy says Kenya is an island of peace. President Moy says Somali shifter bandits are trying to destabilize Kenya. Somali shifters don't tuck in their shirts. The king of Rwanda is nearly seven feet tall and is always standing outside Nairobi cinema where women come and kneel in front of him. He is not allowed into Rwanda. He is a refugee. He used to flirt with mum before she met and fell in love with Baba. Kings are in trouble from presidents. The Buganda king is a waiter in London. Uganda is a picture on a map shaped like the back of the bumpy head of somebody facing giant Congo stubbornly. His long kimei jaw swaying as it cuts into Rwanda. His face is full of lakes and rivers. Presidents are also in trouble from generals. Like Uganda and Sudan to the north, everybody is in trouble from communists. Like Mengistu Heil Mariam, whose hand I shook when he visited Baba's factory with President Moy, and our school choir sang for him. He was very short and had size 5 butter shoes, exactly my size. Lord Baden-Powell was also a size 5. He left his footprint at Rwalan campsite in Nairobi. In every classroom, there's a map with a photo of the president's head in the center of each African country. Kenya is an island of peace, it says on TV all the time. People should stop politicking, Moy says. Mom's home in Uganda is near the border with Rwanda, near Congo. She can't go to visit. The border is closed. I look up from my book, from the surety of flying flamingo secretaries, and look up first at the sky, then at pink and blue Lake Nakuru below us. A first word and picture book, my own book, snaps into place in my mind. In it, clouds are the hair of God. He is old and balding. The radiant blue light leaks out of his head. We sit inside him, receiving rain and sun, thunder and lightning. I look up towards the flamingos rise up from the lake, 
like leaves in the wind. Our dog, Juma, is grinning, mouth open and panting and harmless, and I have this feeling. It is a pink and blue feeling, as sharp as the clear highland sky. Goosebumps are thousands of feathers, a swarm of possible people waiting to be called out from the skin of the world by faith, by the right words, the right breeze. The wind swoops down, God breathes, and across the lake a million flamingos rise, the edges of Lake Nakuru lift, like pink skirts swollen by petticoats, now showing bits of blue panties, and God gasps. The skirts blow higher, the whole lake is blue, and the sky is full of circling flamingos. Fantastic. Thank you, Binyavanga. Um, Colin McCann has called this book The Portrait of an Artist as a Young Kenyan, which, which I really loved. And reading your book, um, especially the early chapters from which you've read just now, I found myself sort of blissfully immersed in this kind of familiar African childhood. But at the same time, it's uniquely Kenyan. And even more than that, it seems to me to be uniquely Wainana. It's about you, and it's about specifically your family. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about how you came to write this book, and specifically about that decision to tackle what's a very difficult thing, I think, which is writing from a child's point of view, and indeed writing memoir at all. Hmm. <clears throat> One, I, I met this Zimbabwean guy who's become a hippie in Aspen, Colorado, and he used to own a bank and lost everything. And he was telling me that he lost the bank not because of Mugabe, mm -hmm. but because he learned to meditate and he was so good at it that he used to sit in boardrooms and just not be there and then, you know, disappear off to, to, to India and so on and so forth. And he told me, you know, the thing, the thing is when you've traveled a lot and you've gone to America and you meet all these Nigerians and all these people, you start to understand that the thing about Kenyans and Zimbabweans is we are brought up to be such good boys. Mm. So I'm like, what do you mean good boys? I just mean good boys. It's just like, it's such a deep thing, that fear of trying, that fear of risking. So I was, I'm a good boy, you know, and I think if there's been... It's never been a difficulty because I've never been able to escape how my imagination refuses. And I fought it for long. Uh, but I think there's something of... I feel the unbearable privilege of living a life where you allow your imagination to take you where it can. Yes. I felt it very, very strongly as a very young child. I felt it very strongly discovering books. And, and I think this book is more than any other thing, an, an homage to that time. Um, I feel almost as if when I'm writing and when I like something that I'm writing, that the best feeling is just that same feeling I had then inside books. So I don't even think it was so much as a watcher of the world. I was a watcher of the world through books. Um, yeah. Um, it's interesting because, as you say, books are there right from the very beginning. But for, for someone like me who's a fan of yours, this book has been a long time in the making. Yeah. <laughs> and um, there's, there's, there's been a lot that you've written, a lot of work that you've done with Kwani and at the Chinua Achebe Center. But I think that for many of us, there's been the sense of waiting for this full-length mm. thing. So I'm guessing it was difficult. Or do you think it just needed the incubation time that you gave it? Um... 
I didn't think it would take this long as things are. And I was like, I signed up. I'll have a manuscript ready in 12 months sort of thing, I guess. But also I was very inexperienced. But I, I, my, my feeling is that there are some things I can't do. Um, at the time that this book was signed, I was already very jaded and tired with all the stuff I was doing. And I need, I, I've always needed I, to feed on on the novelty of building new things. I knew then, even when we'd signed it, that I signed to write the book not because I wanted to write Discovering Home or this book, but I want, it was good territory to use my own life to take quite a lot of risks and play with language and take things a lot aggressively further along. So every th decision that's been made since then to come down to these seven years has been to get to that point. Mm -hmm. um, and I feel to a point I achieved it to some level of satisfaction that I finished that cycle. Now I'm now impatient to start a new cycle of the next thing. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I, I, as a reader, I can only say it's worth the wait. And <laughs> I'm, I'm interested in what you're saying about sort of experimenting in language because the book made me think of two things. First, I thought of Ake, and there's a very odd perception or perceptive ability in, in the boy Binyavanga that you describe mm. that, that reminded me in a really nice way of um, Walesh Inka's very mm. odd childhood as well. But they, I also thought of Portrait of the Artist as a young man. I thought of that development of language from the beginning of the book and the language grows and matures and kind of gets more formal and more recognisable mm. as, as we progress through the book. Um, I found that really valuable, so I found that it was sort of quite carefully structured, and in some ways it made me feel as if I was re reading a constructed novel. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how how you remember things through your own life, and then how you then, as a writer, construct them into a, a, what seems to me a seamless narrative. I mean, I guess let's say before this book, in fiction, and, and I talk about fiction more than any other thing. Because in a way, the journalism and comes very easy to me. So I stepped into this book and started writing a lot about the childhood part because for many reasons, when I'm stuck, I always try to go back to that seven-year-old in me, which I, I, I'm fortunate is very accessible to me. I, have, I can feel that world very strongly and with great clarity. To transfer that world to the page is difficult, but then now... In the process of doing it, every time people are telling me this is not working in their various drafts, that just made me more stubborn. Because for me, the purpose of prose is to go through those obstacles. So people were like, you can't talk about dreams. Dreams don't make good prose. I'm like, why? So now I want to. You can't talk about it. Then for, And also there's always the thing of children, you can't talk about the perspective of a child because a child has no intelligence and when they're adults, they're really uh, falsely looking at what wisdom they had which they didn't have and I believe that to be a lie and I, and I wanted very much those childhood parts to unfold in real time um, because I, f I felt that, that you, you can make a language to present the world of that child fully intelligently and fully coherently uh, and that, that was one of the biggest challenges in the book, but one of the most exciting. Mm. That was the parts that I, if you read the book, you know I was really feeling mm. it. Mm. No, it's, yeah. it comes out. And I, 
it's interesting that you talk about the they almost become then intellectual challenges and challenges of craft when you're talking mm. about those early pages as we work through the book I found some of the the period of time when you're writing about being in South Africa mm. and having quite a difficult time deciding who you are and what your place in the world is I found those incredibly honest and it seemed to me that there's an emotional cost writing with that level of honesty and an entirely different kind of difficulty mm. and I wondered about what you went through as you were writing that but also about sort of you know the response you've had to those to those bits mm. some people who've read the book uh, I'm waiting for the one about masturbation we shall see <laughs> but <laughs> um it wasn't hard. I mean, once I, I feel like I don't I have no problem being fully honest once I, I have the aesthetic platform. And once I built the aesthetic platform, it became easier. Now, because it's not a tell or a book, because I'm not revealing the secrets of my family and so on and so forth, I'm the one at stake. Um, and even in the way I'm at stake, people find out a lot and not much. There's not that much of information that's going on. So the question just becomes about emotional honesty and, and a kind of style. And and also I think that the, the present tense helped, helped keep people very much in the moment. And I feel like this book, uh, you know, after being an editor for such a long time, you get a sense of what an African readership takes or doesn't take. And, and what this book is going to do and what it seems to be doing already is simply telling people, thank you for talking about our times. Because... Like, okay, Binyavanga, I'm a born-again Christian. I can't say that I was doing such a thing when I was doing this. But I was there in a place like that then. And I'm reading it because of that. Yeah, yeah. It's really interesting to me, Binyavanga, that you're talking specifically about your African readership. Because I think that some of the um, advanced um, advanced yeah. blurbs that I've read are talking about an African, childhood, an African childhood, an African life we've never seen. Yeah. Well, obviously, a lot of people have seen <laughs> and lived that life. And um, for me, that's the, the glory of a mm -hmm. book like this, is the reflection of that life. So you've told us how your, your audience, amongst people who've lived this, the same life, or mm -hmm. if they were Christians, just watch from the sidelines. Mm -hmm. I, I wonder about your huge audience around the world mm -hmm. and what the responses have been for, from, from them. The America version came out first. Uh, then there was a really nasty review by The Economist which was not even nasty because it was bad, but it was nasty because it just was malicious. But then I fortunately found out who wrote it, so I'm going to out him right here. His, his name is Jonathan Ledgard, and he's the economist correspondent in Nairobi, and I outed him on Facebook, and you can say I said that. Because I'm like, I'm going to provoke the fucker for the rest of his life. That was so silly. And he also has a book that came out in June, which may be quite good, so I advise everybody to read it. Now, uh, uh, but, I mean... The reviews, the initial reviews in America by the, you know, the book clubs and the, and the newspapers had the usual kind of distance America has from the rest of the world, which is sort of kind of go, you may not have never have heard of this country, except that maybe Obama was there, <laughs> but sort of thing, which is fine. But I kind of felt that the emotional honesty caught people. But I don't even think it was that. I feel like... I, I'll say this, I think more and more that I think this book is a lot about languages and a lot about yes. being an English-speaking person in a country of many languages. I remember a friend telling me when I went to India for the first time, he was like, it's very difficult to explain to somebody in the West 
and in in English speaking West in particular, just how much people live in English in India, very very comfortably, with so many other things, and reading English, reading America writing, but reading English writing in particular, it has a certain kind of tribalism when you when you read Martin Amis that you're like I'm reading you because I've loved reading your predecessors and yourself for a while and I allow myself to be of the English tribe for a while while reading you. But I'm recognizing that you can't even code 1% into my world. I'm in yours. And that writing this book was also about being able to create an English in a readable book that my auntie can read and then anybody can read that doesn't tone down the high ideas it's playing with that is funny enjoyable that doesn't fear to look and say and that is truthful but that joe england can read and peter kikuyu can read and they find fully comfortable whether that is fully achieved i don't know but what's nice so far is that when i did a bbc interview now in kiswahili what people pick out is different but means a lot um and I think that that's I feel like that's the challenge of English writing in the future. I feel that 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 is the challenge is to be able to code your prose. It's a challenge of prose to be what the we who is we when your one is writing. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And and there's there's something there's a point in the book where um we get to the line where you think one day I will write about this place. And I know at that point I was whooping because I was, you know, I, I love the title and that sense of bringing together all of these experiences because what you do is exactly, you know, that of, of providing that code for either the person who's reading from the same experience or from the outside. And I forgive me if this is mischievous, but I want to know if, if there's any way that this book is an antidote to those many, many, many memoirs of white African childhoods that we've read, some of which are excellent, but there's a dearth of the same from the from the um the black majority. And and I wonder if you thought of it at all or if you just dismissed dismissed the idea of writing an antidote to those. Not not in an obvious way. I mean just I was in Nakuru and then there were all these libraries and all these books were there. And I read them all. And I think when you're talking to a readership here in England it's they're at a lack of awareness, for example, just in the general English public, or even talking to journalists from The Guardian or whatever, that in Nakuru or Bangalore, someone moves up to their club and picks up The Guardian, The Mail, and all these books. We lived, I lived with those books. So Flame Trees on Thika was shown on a miniseries on Kenya Broadcasting Corporation when I was a child. Out of Africa all these books, all of them. And I read them all because they were there and I read anything that was there. Mm. So I don't feel like I wanted to respond. The part of me really lives and revels in the world, the imaginative world of a young white child on safari. And I'm like, oh, I went on safari, so on and so forth. Part of me has grown up and become critical of it, but also your palate can't no longer digest them. Mm. That's really what happens. Your palate rejects it at some point because you grew out of it. But the body of work hasn't grown out of it. And so there are certain things you write about a lonely woman in Africa with a horse saving something. That's a, that usually 
Jonathan Cape. You know, you know, like, but they go to places. So there are these tropes. In England, there are the tropes that land. And we know them, you know, the German woman who falls in love with a Maasai, they're tropes. They, they enter a particular space. But the thing is, you're familiar with them. But the kind of imaginative writing I do, that world is still part of me, the other one is still part of me, so I'm just like, I've got all this stuff to play with. That's like, I'm like, for free, you've given me? That's, you know, it, it's so, it's beautiful. So it's a, a sort of, it, it all belongs to me. Yeah. I want to go back a little bit to just talk about your family. There are two scenes in the book that really have stayed with me. There's, there's one where you describe a family reunion, your, mm. your mother's family reunion, and, um, you know, meeting with your grandparents mm. and their response to having their children around them. You also describe early in the book a scene outside your mother's hairdressing salon, mm. which turns, not violent, but which turns unpleasant. And mm. I... I wondered throughout the reading of the book how your mother's origins and the fact that she came from somewhere else, else influenced not just the child you were, but also influenced how you as an adult now see yourself as an African and travel throughout the continent. Because there has, I think from the very beginning, there's that sense of being from two different places mm. in a way that I think writing from outside of Africa doesn't allow to be possible. Mm. I wonder if you can speak a little bit about that. I think, especially my, my dad died this last June and, and it's been kind of interesting because the books had just arrived and he didn't even get to read it yet. And and more and more, finding out, so for example, that my dad didn't finish high school, that my dad has been working since he was 14. And, you know, this was the 50s. They were just such adventurers. My mother was a child when she left Uganda, met this man, decided to marry him. People went off to New York and so on and so forth. So part of it is that is that is just remembering that in the days of the 90s when borders were being secured and this kind of rising xenophobia and this kind of dark days of the post-independent post generation, just how much people moved. So... so it, even though you hear my aunties complaining, like, where was he? Oh, God, he was in Lagos now. You know, what's happening to this poor boy? And so on and so forth. They themselves, my grandmother was going to do the first Pentecostal movement in the 1920s, 1930s. She's going off to Uganda to convert people to become born-again Christians in the 1930s. That woman who never wore shoes all her life. So, you know, they lived in really adventurous times and I kind of wanted a sense of adventure in this book too in the travels so not I didn't go out of it to not present Africa with war but you know people adventure yes. you know people set off barefoot and I interviewed years ago a 90 year old man who was like oh I we hadn't paid hat tax and so I was told to conscript it to the army and then I went to Fortin, we built a road to Ethiopia, and then I was end up in Algiers. When I finished in Algeria, I didn't have anything to do, so I decided to go to Israel to start a church. So then I got to Israel, I was about to start the church, and then I was told my dad had, my mother had died, so I decided to go and start a farm there. And then I never left the farm. You know what I mean? <laughs> yes. Well, you know, there's a there's a part in your book, there's um I think it's sort of later on in the book, where you talk about the going somewhere people, mm. that sense of there's some of us who have the freedom to travel the world mm. or the resources to travel the world. And there's some of us who are, to a certain extent, stuck, I mm. think, in, in a way that maybe in the past the the pressures making mm. us stuck were, were not there. And um, and so I, I, I 
that made me wonder, you know, you've partly answered the question, but I, I was also really interested in, in the current project you're working on, the Pilgrimage Project, mm -hmm. because it seems to me that it speaks very much to that idea of the them and us, the going somewhere people mm -hmm. and the we, we can't move people. Mm -hmm. Can you tell me a little bit about pilgrimages and sort of how it grew out of, I guess, your experiences or your interests? I think, I mean, first, because I, I kind of started travel writing really early and um, for newspapers and that sort of thing and, and really enjoy the form, uh, to the, the World Cup was coming to Africa and I was just like, you know, for years, just a group of writers that I hang out with and, and then we talk about things, have been trying to get people who fund this sort of thing to fund travel within the continent because we're always getting tickets to London. And you always get tickets to London and you sit and talk about the same old thing over and over again. But that ticket to London is easy from Lagos in the writing culture world. But Lagos to Nairobi is just a nightmare. Who funds it? Will you save an AIDS victim? Nah, 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 nah. So it just seemed that, that you could gather a critical mass of writers to commit the time to write a full-length book, 13 full-length books we wanted, of 30,000 words of travel writing, sending writers of African origin to cities they've never been to, to discover them. For nothing important, sometimes you're following a bottle of beer across Lagos. Sometimes you're following a song into Kinshasa. And then you produce the series of books that come out in the next in the Brazil World Cup. It seemed like the maddest and most wonderful idea, and it just didn't seem possible, and it just kind of sort of came together. So, over the next few months, we're going to see the manuscripts have started, started trickling in. So I'm running around looking for money, and then now the economy has collapsed, and so now I'm going to Norway because they have oil, and then Dubai doesn't. So you know, so I'm still looking, so but it's a great, great adventure. Yeah. I, I love that sense of adventure, and I have to say that sort of thinking about from the very beginning, from your winning of the Kane Prize and setting up of Kwani, I'm not sure if you, if you would say this yourself, but to me it really changed the face of what, not, not just East African, but African literature looked like because of the possibilities opened up mm -hmm. and the way that people then embraced those possibilities and owned it. And the Pilgrimages Project sounds mm. exactly the same way. It's a whole new way of looking at the continent mm. through the, the beer, the, the football, mm. and as you say, not ignoring the wars, but acknowledging that there's life mm. going on otherwise. Are you conscious of setting out to do something, or are you just following your imagination and your, your dreams? I think that very, very many people of my generation had a blank 10 years. I think people who came of age in the late 80s saw their worlds really collapse. If you're on the continent, your parents lost everything, your incomes dropped, your universities collapsed, and many of us kind of crawled through the 90s, slept through the 90s, and then in 2000 and something, stuff started opening up communications, internet, democracy here and there, possibilities, and so on and so forth. So the explosion of that can be explained by that. It's, you're, it's not so much that you, you, you knew, but the, the, the level and the intensity upon which people transferred. Like already in seven years, we are talking about four generations of African writers. I'm like, these kids now, look at them. Where did they? And then you had the diasporas. Now you're having the homegrowns. You're having generations. So there was just a lot of what I like to call pent up. And that pent-up exploded. And where, where it's going to land, we don't know. So 
I mean, and me, where pent happies and where explosions are, I'm kind of generally there. Thank God for that. Vinyavanga, we could talk forever, but thank you. And mostly, thank you for this wonderful book. Thank you so much, Elijah. Okay. Really happy you loved it. <laughs> okay. Thank you, Alan Vinyavanga, and thank you for listening. We hope you'll join us next time. <laughs>